Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast. And as always, I'm here with Wendy, my fabulous co-host. Wendy, how are you doing? Really well, thank you. I'm enjoying the fact that the sun's out, the ice cream van's just been, it's summer's definitely on the way. How are you? I heard the ice cream band just before we started. It was it was a little bit of nostalgia there. So yeah, that was lovely. So I'm also very excited because we have Brian Scott joining us today. Now, Brian is the Marketing Communications Director at Ozone. He is a wonderful and genuine human being, and I'm so happy to, to have him on the show. He's also a mentor at Brixton Finishing School and a regular on the Speakers for Schools program. So welcome, Brian. Thank you, Tamara. I'm actually blushing a little bit now, so you probably can't see that. <laughs> well, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for, for years, so I'm really pleased that you've said yes. But before we start questioning you on your life history, taking you back to your childhood, all of that fabulous stuff, it would be great to understand. Just tell us more about Ozone and also how you got to be where you are now. Just give us a little sort of flavor of your early career. Oh, love to. So, um Ozone, for those that don't know, we are the digital advertising business that was founded by four of the biggest publishing groups in the UK. So our shareholders are News UK, The Guardian, The Telegraph and Reach PLC. Um, They came together five years ago this June to create a business that in many ways is is really historic because you've got four major competitors uh, working together to, to build something for the future. What are we? Well, we're not, we're not as many people ask me, they say, are you kind of something to do with environment? A little bit on that later, but we're not. We're ultimately a digital advertising business and we've got two sides to the business. One is to make it really easy for advertisers to reach um, audiences across what we call the premium web, which is editorially led websites. So the big kind of popular news and magazine websites that you'll heard, heard about, as opposed to maybe some long tail websites, which many of which nowadays are made for advertising rather than for user consumption. So our job is really to help advertisers reach audiences across all of those at scale in the way that they can do with many of the other big tech platforms that have come into existence in the last decade or so. On the other side, we've got um, a publisher business, which is really designed to help our publisher partners make the most out of their digital advertising revenue. So their assets that come from, whether it's... um, data um, and obviously everyone's after first party data at the mm-hmm. moment and publishers are, are, are kind of uh, swimming in tons of contextual um, data in particular um, or whether it's their inventory which obviously for years and years and years they've, they've had um, really strong inventory levels. We've been kind of set up to really work for publishers of any size and guys so the, the kind of primary thing that brings them together is this idea of premium so if they've got an editorial led approach we make sure that we have the the tools and services that can help them flourish in the digital age. And and I guess for, for, from my own perspective, there's two sides to that. One, there's a, there's a commerciality of it. And the second one, there's, there's a user benefit, which is the more investment we can get into quality publishing, the less likely it is that, that 
those those websites will go behind paywalls mm-hmm. and it means that there's a more democratic um, way of accessing premium content. We talk about it quite a lot if, is in terms of the you, you could end up having the haves and haves nots in society and especially in the age of fake news and, and, and stuff that's led to kind of deceive people. It's really important that we can keep that open dialogue um, with people. I did say we're not about um, sustainability or kind of greenness, but we have been doing a ton of work in this space at the moment. You might have seen in the trade press lots of stuff about uh, the impact of programmatic advertising. And I think there was something published the other day that said that the average campaign is the equivalent of 17 transatlantic New York flights. Um, And we've been doing a ton of work over the the last uh, two years to really reduce our own uh, carbon output mm-hmm. from our from our platform we've got certain bits that we can control ourselves right now just to give some context around that in the past 12 months i think we've seen the number of bids on our digital inventory increase by 3x so as our business has grown but we've managed to reduce our total carbon by 52 percent that's amazing um so it's pretty impressive in terms of the work i can't take any credit for that as our engineering team they're phenomenal and they're doing that we're always talking about how it makes good business because the minute you start reducing something over there, you're reducing the carbon, which is great for business, and it's actually what a lot of our advertising partners are asking for. But it's also good business from our perspective because it reduces costs. Yeah. Um, so the less you're having to serve, the better and the cheaper it is. So, yeah, that, that's also in a nutshell. Um, I, we, we, we kind of condense ourselves under the banner, which is called, we call Simply Premium, which is basically meaning that we're only premium websites, we're here to make it really easy for publishers and advertisers to thrive in that space. And I know you've been winning lots of awards as well. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, as I said, we're getting ready to don our glad rags again tonight because we're shortlisted for um, the Commercial Team of the Year at Campaign Media Awards. So we've got our fingers crossed for that. But I mean, genuinely, um, I, I talked to Wendy about this before. It's just it's, sometimes it's just a pleasure to be uh, shortlisted among some great company. As a, as a business that's only five years old, being able to sit alongside people like Channel 4, like Mail Metro Media or um, Hearst that we're, we're sitting alongside tonight. It's, it's, it's incredible and it's incredible for the team and it, it really gives you the, I guess, the kind of the get up and go to go and do it again. And if you don't win this time, there's always another time. Totally, yeah. Kind of judged by the company that you keep, as it exactly. were. Exactly. <laughs> I like to think of it as like a wedding and we want to be at the top table. Well, keeping everything crossed for you, of course. So take us back a little bit. So how did you get to be at Ozone? Talk to me about your, your early career. I'm going to go right back to the very beginning because yeah. um, if, I, if I was talking to, I quite often do like talks to school kids and stuff. And the first slide that I put up would be a picture of a Big Mac because I, I literally got my first job in media and advertising as a result of my very first job after I left school. So I worked in McDonald's for five years while I was at university. I actually started my final year at school. Even even today, some of the stuff that was formative in that, in terms of kind of keeping busy at work, always finding something to do. My boss used to shout at me, time to lean, time to clean, uh, which I do use around my flat quite often, talking to myself <laughs> usually. But um, it, there's a lot of those principles, I think, that, that are instilled in you at an early age that I still still kind of live with me today. But I don't mean to sort of stop your flow, but I, I just did one summer and at McDonald's and all of those phrases had stayed, have stayed with me as well. You've <laughs> literally taken me <laughs> right back to them. So yeah. yeah, but really good, really good training. Absolutely. Don't get me started. I could tell, I could still write me off all the times for how long it takes to pick a big <laughs> um, I'm sure it's changed nowadays, but I remember what they taught, taught me back in the day. But I, I studied I studied marketing and, and accountancy, actually, at, at University at Strathclyde. 
And at the end of my course, I I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I'd had many different kind of diversions throughout that four years that I studied, um, from going on going doing the milk round with all the big major accountancy firms and kind of getting asked why I really wanted to be an accountant. Couldn't answer that question, hence why <laughs> I am not one today. Um, but there was there was lots of conversation around managing the balance between uh, your kind of maybe more creative side and the more kind of rational kind of factual side that I'm, I, I have that balance. I, I'm very much a kind of can ramp things up and down depending on, on the situation. So I decided to study marketing in my final year and it was in my advertising class. Luckily, somehow I got a really high mark in one of the exams. When I graduated the exam, sorry, the professor gave five names to Leo Burnett's for people to go down for interviews. I was one of them because I had aced that essay. Went down with a couple of my friends and we all got interviewed. And genuinely, I was sat in the meeting. We didn't, I didn't know what it was for. It was for a media assistant, so a media, media planning assistant. No idea what media planning was. In my head, <laughs> media was, I don't know, even know what I was thinking. It was probably mm-hmm. the news. I was thinking about thinking a bigger thing. I hadn't really thought about what the job was. And kind of pre-internet days, so I couldn't really do that much research. Sitting there and called in for the interview, we started talking and... The guy who became my boss, Jerry D'Angelo, he turned around and said, right, first question, straight into it, a little bit of blurb about um, what, what they were doing. And he said, first question, we go, you're going to be, if you come here, you're going to be working on a client, and that client is McDonald's. Yes. And I was like, <laughs> Got this. Yeah, and he said, we um, were just about to launch um, ice cream cones nationally. It's a major campaign for us. If you were working with us right now, who would you be thinking about targeting? Now, obviously, you do all that stuff at university and you think, you know, you've had the word targeting. You've actually written an essay about it, but you've never really quite applied it in real life. But I kind of I kind of knew what he wanted me to say. And I said, you kind of want me to say school kids, or sorry, kids or, mother, or parents with children. It's targeting mm-hmm. that younger audience. And he went, yeah, correct. And he was ready to move on. And I said, but there's something else I want to tell you. And he said, What's that? I kind of pulled off his glasses and kind of said, what's that? And I said, well, in the past kind of three months, we've been trialing ice cream cones in Scotland. And in my store, what we find is that on a Thursday morning, we get a queue of pensioners coming round to the store. And then what they order is ice cream cone and a coffee. And he looked at me as if to say, right, and? And I said, and the reason why I do that is because it's pension day. So they've just been paid. Uh, if you like, and the soft serve ice cream doesn't hurt their false teeth. It doesn't. It's not overly sensitive with their teeth, and they can get because of the price point. A cone was thirty five pence, and a coffee was sixty five pence. They can get both for a pound. <coughs> he went, mm. and he said, "Oh, that sounds interesting." Kind of moved on. What I didn't know was that in between the first interview that I had them on, the second one, he went and called the client at McDonald's and said, "Is this true?" And he said, "Yeah." And Basically, on the back of that, I was offered the job. That's amazing. And a maths question <laughs> I got right. And the, the interesting thing for me was that I wouldn't, as much as I loved my degree, I wouldn't have learned any of that from sitting in a, in a classroom. So quite often when I'm talking to the kids, when I do some of the school stuff and talking to the young talent that's coming up, I'll quite often say, don't, just because you might not get an internship somewhere that's really sexy and that looks great on your CV, you'll learn a ton of stuff from doing any job or any vocational stuff. 
But yeah, no, I, t- I took that job. I ended up working at Leo Burnett's for two and a half years in in media, uh, doing planning, kind of, and it was such a fast-tracked learning curve. We were quite a small team, and we worked really, really closely with the client. So, uh, like you guys do, work very closely with your your um, your customers. I think, from an advertising perspective, it definitely felt to me, based on what I saw around the agency, the way that McDonald's and Leo Burnett's worked back then, in particular, was incredibly close. A lot of the marketing team had come up through the store ranks, so they kind of almost saw us as the kind of marketing experts in many ways, or at least the advertising and media experts. So they really, really lent on our experience. So I felt maybe from six months into the job that I was I was adding something and of value to, to their business. Interesting enough, after about two and a half years of doing that, I then got, as many people do when, when they're in their younger years, poached to go and do another job on some sexier brands. I think PlayStation was one, Virgin was another, and got offered something like five or six grand more than I was on. And at that time, that was that was game changing. So I went to another media agency, and literally within three months, I realized that I wasn't actually in love with the job. I was in love with the relationship that I had with the brand and the client that we were working on. So that kind of that kind of made me pivot in my brain a little bit in terms of what I wanted to do with myself. And I kind of wanted to go back into... In my head, I wanted to do client-side marketing. But at the same time, I knew that that was very competitive to get into. I knew that many of, especially in those days, you usually had to have gone through the kind of FMCG, kind of P&G route into mm-hmm. marketing to get to get a good job. So I pivoted kind of into into the world of media. So I, I obviously know media. I kind of shifted into that, but on the B2B side. So I guess in many ways, marketing to the person that I had been in my previous jobs. And that was, that, that my first job was uh, at Capital Radio back in the days in Leicester Square, which is amazing. Uh, I always wanted to be a pop star, so it's probably the closest to it I would ever get. Hold, hold on a moment. Pop star as in singing or playing an instrument or both? Or... No, I would definitely want to be front and centre. I didn't want to be a back and dancer, <laughs> definitely not. Lead man, love it. Maybe, maybe a group, maybe that comes up for like kind of second vocals on, on the album. <laughs> but definitely, I loved pop music at the time and I had this chance to go and work there and I loved it. I was there for, there for five years and had an incredible time, met some incredible people. And while I was working, it didn't feel like work. And then there was, like every industry, there's a lot of change. And my role got made redundant as capital manager GWR. And then a previous boss of mine at Capital, Linda Grant, um, had moved to the Daily Mail and General Trust. Somewhere I never thought I would work. But she said to me to come and, and speak to her about a job there. And I went into DMGT, surrounded by incredible people, incredibly warm, smart, clever people, and maybe not the vision of what you might expect when you think about that business someone said to me at one point said if you want to change anything anywhere you can only do it by being part of it Mm. and I thought to myself well if if there's ever going to be a chance for me to rub off a bit of me into this organization well then let's give it a go so I spent seven years there actually so five years um, I built an internal creative agency that worked with all the brands in the business so while everyone will think of the Daily Mail, we obviously had Metro, we had job site, we'd find the property, prime location, Loopy Love, motors.co.uk. So it was across a broad range of, uh, of digital pure play businesses as well. Learned a ton in that role. And then Linda actually left her job as my boss to go to be managing director of Metro. 
And at that point, we'd worked together maybe for seven years, seven or eight years. And we said, right, now's the time to kind of part ways. And then about six months later, she went, maybe not quite yet. Would you like <laughs> to go to Metro? <laughs> that, down, I went, down I went to Metro, um, where I took up the role of marketing director in 2011. So leading up to the London Olympics, where as a, as a core London media brand, Metro was right bang in the centre of it. It was still, yeah. and it still is to, 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 to much a degree today, one of the prime media outlets for, for, for London. And we had an amazing time through that period, kind of uh, expanding how the how the brand was seen by uh, consumers. So we actually did some consumer, consumer facing marketing for the first time for the newspaper because we were going seven days a week during the Olympics. So we, we didn't have huge budgets, but we had to be smart about it to make sure that the, the, the bins of metros that people would see on a Saturday and Sunday, they didn't just assume they were left over from Friday. So we did, even back then, 10 years ago, I sometimes look back at what we did and I go, that, that was quite smart. We did some really <laughs> tactical, targeted outdoor. We did some, some radio stuff only in London, but we also did some uh, text messaging campaigns, which when you got into the geolocation of the near, near the main line train stations, it would trigger you to remind you to go and pick up a copy of Metro. And that was incredible. And obviously with that came lots of trips to the Olympic Park, which was which was phenomenal. And again, yeah, I was there for a while. Um, had some things happen in my personal life, which uh, meant that I took some time out towards uh, in kind of early, late 2013, sorry, early 2014. And then after that, I was kind of a bit of a, bit of a loose end and kind of ended up going to work part-time for a friend of mine, Kathleen Saxon, who ran, who ran the Lighthouse Company at the time. She's now CMO, the global CMO for Omnicom. She was a headhunter. We'd worked together on some stuff previously. She said, can you just come in and do some events for me? And I ended up being there for three and a half years. Uh, working with a, a lovely bunch of people. I didn't really want to be in the service industry again. I, I much preferred having something tangible to talk about. But it goes back to one of the things that I've learned that quite often it's the people that make the work rather than the, the work making making it work for me. Um, but I was, I was all through the time, I was very open and honest with Kathleen about finding something that kind of ticked the boxes about where I want to work. And eventually I got a job at PrimeSight, the out-of-home company, mm-hmm. um, which it was absolutely 100% the right thing to do because it was a culture-led business that working with an amazing bunch of people and I thought long and hard about it. I had a couple of offers on the table and I knew it was the right one for me to do. So I went there to maybe three weeks after I joined. Uh, it was announced that Prime Site was getting bought by Global, who obviously had bought Capital Radio all those years previously. And I was like, okay, great. So 10 months later, my role was redundant again. So I was like, oh, what do I do? But I, these these things, I, I, I've never, uh, this that was the third time actually I had redundancy or yeah. my role had been made redundant. And I'm just like, yeah, we'll roll with it. We'll see. Very fortunate to be in a position where I could say that to myself. I, I grant that it's not the same for everyone, but I was able to say, right, we'll kind of roll with it. We'll see what happens. And that's when, that's when the job at Ozone came along. And I went for an interview with my boss, my now boss, Damon, who's incredible. We'll talk, we'll no doubt talk about him very shortly, but he pretty much offered me the job after the first kind of chat. And I was like, I'd like to know a little bit more about you, about the company, about the people that I'll be working with because the cultural part of it had been such a major driving decision about going to Prime Site. So luckily, it all kind of came together. And yeah, three and a half years here. Honestly, probably thought I would have been here maybe about three months. Uh, but yeah, it's loving it and working with genuinely with some of the best people that I've ever worked with in my life. Fantastic. And there are so many themes and you're, you're right about 
you know, being motivated by the people around you. And I think we'll we'll come back to the um, to the whole thing about being maybe redundant three times and, and resilient. So I'll, I'm I'm going to come back to that if if that's all right. I, I will mentally park that for now because I know that Wendy is is keen to uh, to ask some questions as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for, um, for for that, Brian. It's it's been such an interesting path, and I'm keen to go back even further if you don't mind and and explore how you were um, as a child and how that might have influenced where you are now. So let's start with with just that what were you like as a kid yes yeah, so I think as a child I was very competitive with myself um I was I, I would say I was very very academic like I would it feels terrible saying it blowing your own trumpet but I was kind of quite often top of the class for many things I remember getting booed off the stage almost at the first year prize given at secondary school because I I think I won like 11 out oh, of the 13 amazing. prizes that were that were going yeah, so people hated me for that. And actually, to be fair, I got bullied quite a bit for it. I think in it didn't take me long after leaving school to realise that academic didn't necessarily mean clever or it didn't mean that you were the best at anything. It meant that you were very good at certain things. So processing information, learned patterns of behaviour, all that kind of stuff that loads of people know better than I do. But I, 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 re- I recognise it didn't make me any better than anyone else. And in many ways, that was quite... I found that quite useful for, for myself, because it put a lot into perspective about those early years. But um, I would say I was, I was equally, I kind of touched on this before, I would say I was equally artistic as I was academic. So I loved theatre, I loved singing, I loved drama, I loved dancing. Uh, we do a lot mm-hmm. of Scottish country dancing at, in schools at Scotland. And I loved that. Like everyone else, they hate it. And I was like, <laughs> get to do a bit of bit of the Highland fling and well it was, it was to be fair it was more what we call social dancing it was the the gay gardens very useful at weddings though very useful at weddings we have learned all that stuff yeah I can still call the steps <laughs> so yeah those those early days I, I mean I, the thing that I, I guess I, I think was that my my brother and sister quite often would say it's like living in your shadow all the time even though that they were incredibly good at other things mm-hmm. um it's, it's, I think it's a very interesting dynamic when you think about children today and how useful the narrative is about academic qualifications not being the only thing you should judge people by because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a positive uh, view of the fact that it kind of worked out for me then I felt great about it, but I'm pretty sure if you asked um, either of my siblings, they would tell you the complete opposite in terms of how it made them feel. What, what were your childhood dreams then? Did you have any sort of vision of what you wanted to be when you were older? Yeah, they're all, all kind of all kind of things that were never going to happen, really. Like I want, to, I genuinely want to be a pop star. It could still happen. It's n- it's not too late. No, no, well, actually, that one couldn't happen because you've not heard my voice. <laughs> TV presenter, I would love to have been a TV presenter, or or something arty. I remember thinking I'd quite like to be an architect, or, and I know that's not arty, but something that's a bit more kind of creative minded, mm-hmm. and the output was creative as well. And it took, again, it took me a long time to realise that. You don't have to be a designer to have creative thought. You don't have to be a creative to have those creative thoughts. But yeah, that, that's probably where my where my mind was at in terms of the dreams and aspirations. If you asked me what the perfect job was, I wanted to run a shop. That was that was it. And, and again, I could have told you why, because I would have spent equal time doing things like the, the stock takes and the serving customers versus dressing the windows in my mind, it was all those component parts that made it quite exciting for me. Yeah, potentially very exciting. Who would, who did you look up to? 
So I, I did I did think about this when you hinted that you might ask me that. And the only person I could think about was Kylie Minogue. Um, <laughs> I actually did. When I when I was 12, I was in a, in a, on a, in a school, inter-school quiz that was broadcast on Radio Clyde, which was one of the big radio stations across the Glasgow area. And they had a mastermind round. And I was the youngest person on my team. And you had to have a specialist subject. And mine, at the age of 12, was the life and times of Kylie Minogue. <laughs> and I had... I had uh, got myself a, uh, the last 12 issues of Lookin magazine. Do you remember Lookin? I remember yes. Lookin, yep, yep. And I had the story of Kylie, so I just learned that, and I did pretty well out of it, so, <laughs> so that was good. I'm not quite sure I had anyone I would look up to and go, like, they were my idol or they were mm-hmm. my hero, but, I mean, I was incredibly influenced by my mum in particular. Mm-hmm. So my mum's a phenomenal person. I, I'm sure everyone would say that about their mum, but it, it was more the as you find out more about your your, your parents as you, as you get older and you realise that, where that influence came from. So my mum was a she was one of the first young police cadets that joined kind of straight from school in Scotland. So I think she was maybe 17, 18 when she joined. Incredible kind of career doing all that kind of stuff. She caught an escape prisoner once. She was on the front pages of all the wow. Scottish papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He pushed her down the stairs, so she lifted a leg and kicked him in between the legs. Good for and he, her. And then rugby tackled him in the middle of a playing field, which is which is great. Um, but we still got all those cuttings. But I think because um, she was so incredibly strong, she did. She uh, through my childhood, I can think of all the things that she did. She was obviously she was a policewoman, and she had three kids. Obviously married to my dad. I remember becoming a, a special constable with the police once she had kind of retired from the police. She worked at weekends and then when we were all old enough to kind of not fend for ourselves but when we were kind of old enough for her to go back to work she was out working full time while she was doing that she was a justice of the peace for for the local community and she ran a she ran a kids group um called the outlets which are like you've got the guides and the brownies and then i think they're called the rainbow guides nowadays but before that they used well they used to be called the brownies and in the area that my mum kind of operated them in was an APT area, which is an area of priority treatment. In terms of it was low kind of social, kind of incredibly high social injustice, really. Mm-hmm. There was a lot, of, a lot of people with not a lot of money and not a lot to get on with. But the guiding movement wanted all the outlet groups to kind of move to be rainbow guides. And my mum said, absolutely not, because in doing that, you have to pay subs. You have to pay subscriptions to the guides and all that kind of stuff. And she said, I'm not doing that. And at one point, she had 50, 60 kind of three to five-year-olds that she would look after every Tuesday night for an hour and a half. And I just, I think all those little things, it's all those bits that she would just say is normal, that mm-hmm. kind of were incredibly formative in me in terms of that 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 giving. Um, and yeah, I would say that she's probably had the, the biggest influence in the way that I I think about things. And, and in many ways, bear with me while I say this, ladies, because you might kind of take it the wrong way if I don't get to finish. When I came into this industry and people started talking about inequality and, and male-female inequality, I was like, what are you talking about? Because I had so many of my initial bosses were women, incredible women who I still look up to today. And I had my mum as a role model. I never saw her as unequal to my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it always felt really alien to me and it, it really took a long time to get my head around it. Luckily, things like, um, I think things like the gender pay gap actually helped mm-hmm. because you go, that's something quantifiable that is not my existence and it's not the story that I have seen. But I genuinely found it really hard to get my head around that because I'd had such a such a positive impact from my from, from my mum my and actually even the, the women around her, but also my first bosses as well. Mm-hmm. 
It's people like your mum that are paving the way for, for the rest of us. She sounds incredible. And I bet she just got stuff done. You know, if if you want something done, ask a busy woman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she was fairly militant with it, though. Let's Good for her. Kind of, <laughs> she had three kids that on, on a, every weekday morning, she had us out of bed by 7 a.m., so that she could make our beds because we wouldn't make them properly. Like, you know, like with the sheets and all that kind of stuff underneath it. I was like, stand attention at the bottom of our beds. Done. <laughs> and, and how about as you've gone through your career, I imagine there have been people, and you've mentioned a couple actually, who've, who've really kind of supported you or influenced you along the way. Is there anyone in particular you'd like to acknowledge? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the person that's had the most impact on my, my, my career would be Linda Grant, who was my boss at Capital Radio, at DMGT and at, and at Metro. Um, I think, and that's not to say that everyone that came after or before didn't have an impact, but I think what Linda taught me was that how to be the best version of myself and not to have to worry about what everyone else was doing. I remember having a conversation with her once about a job that I had applied for after we'd stopped working together. And I went, my only worry is I feel like I'm going to end up writing a lot of PowerPoint decks. And she went, but you're really good at that, Brian. And I went, I know I'm good at that, but I don't want to be known for that. She went, why not? She went, you're really, really good at it. She went, that won't be all you're doing, but you can take some credit for the fact that you're very good at something that not a lot of people are. And I think that learning and that um, input from her was incredible. Um, She taught me to... uh, say taught me to she in many ways she kind of enforced it on me to take uh more responsibility push myself beyond my own comfort zones and and i can be very i can be very led by the imposter in me i don't want to call it imposter syndrome because i don't think i've got that but i think i can be caught back by something if Mm -hmm. i don't feel that i'm like i'm capable of i need someone to say brian you are capable of it and then i'll go yeah fine okay i believe you if you believe me i believe you i don't think there's something sitting on my shoulder that says no you can't do that but she was very much the person that kind of helped push by that. And, and I think everyone that's come since has kind of layered on top of that. I'd say that probably um, I'm genuinely, not just saying this because he's my current boss, but Damon, who's uh, my current boss at Ozone, is probably one of the most incredible people I've worked with in terms of giving me, again, belief in myself, being someone that I really look up to because I learn from him every day and making me feel unequal, but at the same time knowing that he's my boss. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I when we have our one-to-ones it's i genuinely find it discursive have really rich conversations about things and it and it's very unique it's very very hard to explain what it's like because it's just incredibly comforting but not necessarily in a way that makes you feel like you're not getting challenged and not doing anything right. it's just i he would hate to hear this so david i hope you do listen to it at some point <laughs> uh, because I think there's, there's something very unique there that um, is is in his character, which um, is incredibly good. I mean, he's he's a he's a Australian surfer dude, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe he's just maybe. incredibly laid back. <laughs> and that's quite a nice little segue for a question about leadership, actually. So, Brian, how would you describe your personal leadership style and any lessons that you've learned along the way? I'd say if I was to, if I was to sum up my leadership style one way, it'd probably be I'm quite persuasive. I tend to have an idea in my head about where I want things to go or think things should go, but I usually know that I can't do it. I'm, I, I'm very clear. I'm very aware that I can't always do it on my own. So I'm quite persuasive in terms of how I do that and kind of try to get people on a journey. I think that's that's for me, it's been the most powerful way that I've got things done. 
I like my, I think like my skill sets. I mean, I used to hate it because I used to think that I was a jack of all trades. But I think that I'm quite good at kind of flexing the leadership style depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. So something needs to be a bit more direct. I will just say this needs to be done in this way. This is how we're doing it. Bang. But I do find that, and it maybe comes back to my interest in kind of more inclusive cultures and all that kind of stuff. I do find that if cajoling people along and getting, it helps get the best out of others any, as, as well. I, I think that that's quite often the best way to do it. And at the same time, it's understanding the other person as well, isn't it? So sometimes yeah. someone does need someone to be a bit more directional and just say, actually, this is what I need you to do. And they'll get on and do it brilliantly. So it's kind of, I guess it's understanding my role with a broad leadership hat on, but then also how that impacts the individuals that I work with. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know this kind of leans on um, actually just talking about inclusive culture. I know obviously culture is a, is a, a real passion for, point for you personally, but it's also something that Ozone is, is, is known for. Has that been a main sort of driver for you to sort of bring that inclusivity into the company and, and in any way you've been then? Yeah, I mean, it's something I feel incredibly passionate about, but I would probably say not evangelical about it because I, I feel like it has to it has to be authentic. Like, mm. it, has to, it has to be real. And I think there's a lot of virtue signaling out in the world just now about how we do X, Y, and Z and, and that kind of stuff. And I, when I, when I joined Ozone, if, if, I, if I just go back to the point at the beginning, like, in terms of having a join a business with purpose is really important. And um, and for me that led on two sides. There was one I could see the purpose and role of Ozone to help publishers survive. And um, some of the challenges that Damon talked to me about in my first interview were very much how we had been discussing our challenges at Metro back in 2012, 2013, around how we kind of grow our digital advertising business. On the same time, thinking about that kind of journalism is a force for good how do journalists and if you ask any journalist whether whether you agree with their leanings or not they will say that their job is to hold the powerful to account if that if money's not supporting that then that is likely to go behind a paywall or it might just disappear full stop so the more we can help kind of fulfill that and kind of ensure that advertiser budgets fulfill that as long as it obviously delivers for the advertisers you can't just say to advertisers fund publishing you have to make sure that that delivers good results for them and that's really important but then beyond that the cultural part is so incredible because you could do all that and you could have the worst culture in the world and you it might just not be not be fun i think that you start with the from the basis of it being a a bunch of like-minded people trying to do something that they have in common Mm -hmm. so when we were in the early days of ozone one of the things we sat down with the team and said what, what is Ozone all about? And they're all like, oh, we all know, we all kind of know, it's all the same and we're all kind of similar, but we need to articulate that. Because we've grown from, well, I was employee number 19, we're now 100 and that's been three and a half years. Yeah, We have to be able to explain what that means and what it means to be someone that works here. So that early group of people, we took all of the senior leadership team out of it. Apart from myself, I just sat in the sides to capture it so I could explain it back. And the team themselves came up with four um, key Ozone values, which we applied to, um, everything that we do so it's all about togetherness it's all about authenticity there's a big bit about doing something for the future and those journeys were very authentic so when it was really fascinating when we came to present that back to the leadership team as i say they weren't involved in any of this it was a case of we got an external facilitator in to kind of capture help condense and and wordsmith the the words that were coming out of 
out of the team and they kind of they uh poured over every single word to make sure it said exactly the right thing the team did not the facilities the team were like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's that's not right that's not right and when it was presented back to the leadership team there was this kind of nothing was said it was just kind of like and and I, and I actually said I spoke there I said well, what does everyone think they went it sounds exactly like what we have like bingo we've done it and yeah. then everyone that's exactly what you want you want to be able to sum it up and, and for it to feel natural and within that we weren't saying anything that was cliched particularly we deliberately didn't put the word fun in there even though we would love to think we're a fun place to work because we felt if we do all that stuff that's going to be one of the outputs that we didn't we didn't include the words inclusive or diverse like so many people were doing, but it was all about authenticity because actually if you can be your real your real person at work, then you should get that anyway yeah. because there's no fears. So, yeah, I think for me it's about making sure that it kind of comes to life in a way that is real rather than just paying lip service to it. And, and we, we talk a lot about how we can help our teams and like – interesting when when the cost of living crisis was kicking in we were like how can we help people Um, we wanted people to be I'm saying this you guys fully remote business but we wanted people to come back into the office a bit more sure still really flexible but like a couple of days a week and but on the same time so like how can we make that better and actually what we found it was in tiny small things that we did that made a big difference to people so we put on we talked about doing breakfast on the days when more people were in the office and then you're like what's going to happen we're going to order in loads of bacon egg sandwiches, they're all going to go to waste because there'll be three people come in. So rather than that, we went for basics. So we've got conflicts, we've got porridge, we've got fruit. And even just interested in that stuff, I've never had so many people say thank you for something. Mm-hmm. And even today, this is like a year later, they're still coming up and saying thank you. And I think it's because it's it's authentic. I was reading something as well, like one of those online memes, of, you know the guy holding the cardboard sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone writes things on and it said, but what does it say? We we don't want your 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 pizza parties in the office. Now we have a prepaid pizza Thursday on our t- on our town hall before the end of the month every month. So the last town hall and just before payday we have pizza because everyone's in anyway for the town hall. So we have pizza. And I've said to people, do, does it feel like we're trying to do it? And they're like, well, no, we've been anyway. It's just nice to be able to sit around and like everyone stands around and talks for the whole of their lunch hour with each other rather than maybe disappearing down the pub or, or going to the sandwich shop, what they might do when everyone's together. It's really, really, really nice and genuine. So yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in not forcing things, but actually obviously you have to orchestrate some of that and you have to keep an eye on what you're doing, but maybe it's just where I've been, but it feels like a lot of this stuff has come to fruition naturally and it's taken a natural path that, We'll be interested to watch how we progress it and, and make sure that we continue to do more mm. as the as business grows. No, and I think that's really true around it being sort of more authentic and letting it just organically happen. That's that's the sign yeah. of a really good a really good culture. So let's go back to resilience. I, I sort of said that I'd, I'd kind of mentally park that. And yeah. I know that you said was it three three times you've been made redundant. Three. And, yeah. and you mentioned going through some uh, difficult things in, in your personal life and uh, previously as well. I want to talk about resilience. I mean, I know you were such a, just such a lovely guy and you always seem super sort of calm and someone who uh, seems very sort of 
comfortable in your own skin is is the sort of what i i i get from you and i imagine there is also a a lot of resilience there so how have you managed to sort of keep perspective can you talk a bit about resilience yeah i mean a bit of a backstory so the the stuff went went, as you say three 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 redundancies actually none of them were a shock so other than the the prime site one because i just joined but by that point, that was number three, and I was kind of like, "Yeah, whatever, it's good, it's all right." And I, to be honest, I'd still banked the money for my second one, so I, I knew I'd be all right for a little bit. I think probably for me, the biggest the biggest driver of this came um, back in 2013 when I was at Metro. And to cut a long story short, my younger sister suddenly passed away. She hadn't been particularly well for a long time, like since she was 16, and she was 33 when she died. She had an amazing life. She mm. Like every, like all of us, um, she had a great career. She was very clever, very smart. But her, her, her passing took us all by surprise. There's, a, there's that element of shock. There's that element of kind of what the frig am I going to do now? Like, what am I? What is what is happening in my life? And to compound that, I then four months later, one of my best mates died of bowel cancer, and it was just one of those periods where you just think, can anything else actually go wrong? Mm. And my my approach to this, and it, there is a reason why I talk about this, because it, it, it struck me, which was, for, for me, the, the idea of resilience is finding your role. What is the role that you want to play within all that? And I realized that, particularly for my, when my sister passed, the role for me was to be a support for my mom, because she had lost her youngest child, her only daughter, and her best friend, basically, all rolled into one. And... That, but what that didn't mean, that didn't mean me getting emotional, not in terms of that part of my life. That was in terms of that role. That was about kind of being there for her, being supportive, making her life easier. And I think what that taught me through that period was that I can be different things in different areas of my life. And actually by bucketing it down into smaller parts, I don't get the fear that I might have had, say, 15, 20 years ago. So... I, I remember quite often going, that that bit I can deal with. If I take that down to the, the, the lowest part, which might be actually mum needs to get away for a break, then I can deal with that. That might mean booking her a holiday or bring her down to London for a few days or send her to see my brother who lives who lived in Florida at the time. There were ways that I could um, kind of deal with that. And I found that has been has become my approach. I, so I, I would probably say it's quite pragmatic. It's very much kind of going, what are the things that I can do? I can't. I couldn't bring my sister back. I couldn't bring Jane back. But I could do things that could make the job that I saw myself as doing through that mm. work better. And that doesn't mean that I detach myself from all the, for any of the therapists that might be listening. I obviously had my own grief. I, I, I dealt with that in my own way. There was things that I did that were very private to me that still are today, and I, I spend time thinking about them. Really, a day goes by that I don't think about either of them. But knowing what I could do to help others around me was, was key to that. So that I would probably say for me, like resilience. How do you keep going? It's just about breaking things down. Mm-hmm. It's breaking things down into. I know loads of people have talked about this before. Manageable chunks. But actually seeing it on that level where you can go, I can take that bit away, I can make that better, and that has impact on other people's people around me was incredibly powerful. And I don't really think about it day to day. I don't really sit down and go, that is what I'm doing. But I, I can I find myself quite often getting frustrated at work or kind of going, Oh my god, I've got too much to do. And then if I sit back and just go, 
right, if I do that there, that, and I hear myself saying it in my brain, if I do that bit there and do that bit there, do that bit there, I can breathe. Mm. And then it, it, it lets me kind of almost relax in many ways and kind of, and then the other bit's a bit of a breeze after that. doesn't take away the fact that I still have to do the job that I've got to do. Um, and I guess that's where the kind of, the similarity maybe with the grief part of it came that pit, I still had to deal with that part myself, but the, the, the inputs I had to do were very, very manageable. So it sounds uh, like the way that you were describing yourself before about that sort of mixture of being quite sort of logical and creative is a very pragmatic way to, to, to deal with things. But um, I, yeah. I also like to sort of ask sometimes about your sort of life mission and purpose i mean it's a big question <laughs> i'm not going to deny it but do you do you have a, a a sort of life mission i don't think i have really to be honest i think and i, I when i was thinking about it, i was thinking it, it would sound really cliched um just being happy and mm. i know that is how do you how do you quantify that and i'd like to think right now i'm pretty happy there are things i would change there are things that i would like to be prepared for should things change yeah but generally being happy and then also trying to help others be happy and those people around about me. If people are laughing, if people are having a good time or or just generally full of life, then it makes me happy. I know, I know as I say, it sounds cliche. It sounds like something you read out of a Hallmark card. But if I can if I can add a little bit of sunshine to people's day every now and again, then that's that's great. I did see a meme though. I saw a meme on uh, Instagram, which I sent to a few people in the office, which was a woman sat at a typewriter going like this. Just say this is me calculating all the money that the that the company owes me for being the person that brightens up everybody's day. And I thought <laughs> I might be our finance director. <laughs> works for me. <laughs> well, from um, a very big question to a series of potentially smaller questions, we're going to uh, finish off now with um, with just a few more personal questions, but but a little but lighter questions. So let's yeah. start with what's your idea of a perfect weekend? Uh, uh, down by the sea, somewhere mm-hmm. by the sea. I mean, I grew up beside the sea, took it for granted, never went down to the beach. Now, I got there quite often. My mum's, as, as, as my mum's getting older, obviously spend more time uh, in the fact where I grew up. We've got a seven-mile stretch of beach uh, where I just walk my dog, and it's just incredible, and it's uh, unspoiled. Like, in, since I was a kid, they have cleaned up. You would never have gone down there during the summer, but now it's spotless, it's incredible. So down by the beach, ideally in a camper van. I used to have an old Volkswagen T2. And sadly, it rusted to bits during lockdown, so I had to sell it. But those kind of things that are the, probably the antithesis of what I would probably do, which would be I'd probably go and stay in a posh hotel somewhere. But <laughs> for me, if I was to think of what I would be doing, it would be down the beach, fish and chips, having a walk with the dog. Perfect. That does sound lovely. Do you have a secret talent that not many people know about? I mean, I've probably told a few people about this, but um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at writing poetry. So back in 1994, I uh, won a competition to be Scotland's Young Poet of the Year. Amazing! And so I'm pretty good at putting together a rhyming couple, couplet, like anything that kind of two lines of rhyme. I'm very good at that. I'm not particularly good at, you know, like these really expressive poems that people write about heartfelt love and all that kind of stuff. And it's all structured. None of that, but a little limerick or something that's very rhyming can do that. And I can also play the recorder with my nose, which is, I think, is a, a very hidden talent. <laughs> probably not one many people want to share. It I was going to say, maybe it's maybe keeping it hidden is no bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> How would your friends describe you? 
I'm sure there's lots of words that I can't really say in public. <laughs> I think when I, if I think about how my people call me, what they call me, they go, they, they tend to call me lovely Bri, and I used to hate it because I used to think, oh, no one wants to be lovely or nice or anything like that. And actually, as I've got older, I've realised that most people aren't particularly nice. <laughs> Not very many are lovely. So I've actually embraced that and I, I, I like that. Um, I think they'd probably think I was quite generous uh, and not necessarily financially, but just with my time and my feelings and all that kind of stuff. They'd probably think of me as pretty good fun, up for a laugh, and probably probably the most likely to put on a wig and a dress and get on the karaoke. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, actually, let's let's go straight to the what is your karaoke go-to song then? So, right, so genuinely, if, if there's no one listening, it's a big diva ballad, so probably Celine Dion, Think Twice, uh, oh, nice. one of those ones, nice. or uh, Jennifer Rush, The Power of Love. Uh, if I'm in public, um, and we had, interesting enough, at the Ozone uh, Christmas party that last year, um, someone said, can we have a karaoke machine for like an hour? So we had four hours of dancing, karaoke machine came out, and literally it never got switched off, it was <laughs> on all night. Um, but I, I, my go-to song that night to kind of get the party started was the famous 500 Miles. It's an easy one. I've got the accent. Da, la, da. <laughs> and also, there's a lot of words in there that just sound much more authentic if you're actually Scottish. So uh, that, that, would pro- that would probably be my go-to for public consumption. Well, we have covered a lot today. <laughs> but is there anything that we didn't cover that you really wanted to be asked that we, we didn't get to ask you? Or do you have any sort of closing thoughts that the platform is yours? I think I think this has actually been very cathartic. I think it's something that people don't actually do enough of, um, which is to go back and think about their their own life journey. When I, when I worked at a Lighthouse Company as an executive search business, one of the things that Kathleen, the founder, would get people to do was write their, what she called their personal story, hmm. which was an accompaniment to your CV, something that told you your journey and they explained some of the things. And like, like Wendy asked, she, one of the first questions was, what did you want to be when you grew up? And that was an amazing process for many people. It was interesting how many people would refuse to do it at first. And then she'd say, I'm only representing you if you do it. I need that to give, it's the, it's the meat round the bones. So I think this kind of process, having, having done this again, it's just reminding me of the things that I'm perhaps good at. There's some things in there that I go, actually, I need to remember those bits and that, Quite often, the things that I'm doing are conscious choices. Particularly, going back to the resilience point. I mean, I, as I say, I have to remember that that's how I work. It's not always top of mind, but having spoke through those examples and how I work, it is very much there all the time. And actually, sometimes if I remind myself that, then my life will be just a little bit less stressful. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.